2: Elizabeth's womb was the most important in Christian Europe probably for more than 20 years people debated the health of it whether she had a womanish infirmity as some discussed
3: that was Anna Whitelock discussing Elizabeth I in a lecture she gave at our recent Tudor's Day event Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of all of these formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. A couple of months ago, we gathered some of the finest 16th century historians in the country to speak at our Tudor's Day, held at Bristol's M-Shed. Among the speakers was Anna Whitelock, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at Royal Holloway University of London. Anna's latest book, Elizabeth's Bedfellows, explores the private life of the Virgin Queen through the eyes of her closest companions, and it was the complexities of Elizabeth's public and private lives that Anna chose to explore in her
2: talk. The title of the talk is The Queen's Two Bodies. So it's a sort of strand, it's a sort of central strand of my book. Um, But I'm not going to focus in on the um, relationships, particularly with the queens and her women. Um, I talk about that at length in the book and also uh, the details of sort of daily rituals of getting the queen dressed and makeup and and all of those small details, as well as the, the sort of big pan-European drama of which the queen and the queen's body and the queen's bed were at the heart and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. In 1586 Queen Elizabeth declared we princes I tell you are set on stages in the sight and view of all the world duly observed. The eyes of many behold our actions. A spot is soon spied in our garments a blemish noted quickly in our doings. Elizabeth's doings the state of her health, her actions and behaviour were the subject of international speculation. Her private life was of public concern. Her body was understood to be more than its fleshly parts, but held to be one and the same as England. The Queen was held to have two bodies, her natural body, subject to ageing, to infirmity, to lust and weakness, and the political body of the state – in other words, the body politic. In her accession speech, she defended and defined her reign as a female ruler by striking a balance between the queen's two bodies. I am but one body naturally considered, though by God's permission, a body politic to govern. With the ritual anointing in the coronation ceremony, the queen's natural body would be fused with the immortal body politic. The health and um, sanctity of... Um, uh, this, these pictures were just... This is a sort of later representation um, in the reign. But, of course, here, Elizabeth's body is very much being identified uh, with the land, with the realm. And never more so, of course, than with the defeat of the, arm, the, the Armada, where her impregnable uh, body equates to, of course, the realm too. And so there's this... Uh, the sort of two bodies are very much fused in that image, um, As Elizabeth didn't give up her virginity, so England proved uh, resistant in its boundaries to foreign invasion. So there's this identification of the two bodies, which uh, is writ large, really, in this Armada picture. The health and sanctity of Elizabeth's body, then, determined the strength and stability of the country, country. Illness, sexual immorality and infertility were political concerns. And it was her ladies of the bedchamber particularly, which of course are one of the sort of focal points of my book, who were in daily intimate contact with the Queen's body, um, who were the guardians of these truths and and therefore the uh, the nation's well-being. And so at the very centre of the realm and the heart of the court was the Queen's bedchamber. And the sort of central character in many ways in my book is not Elizabeth, but actually the Queen's bed the queen's bedchamber and her bed was both a public and a private space here her natural body was laid bare and at its most vulnerable by uh, dressing elizabeth by sleeping alongside her the ladies of her bedchamber could observe any bodily changes in the queen attend to her if she was unwell share her nighttime fears i mean she was a famous insomniac um share her confidences and defend her, crucially defend her against hostile rumours. So they were there as kind of chaperones. They were there and therefore nothing else could uh, have happened, or at least that was the idea. An unmarried queen heightened fears. Women were expected to marry and Elizabeth's decision to remain unwed ran counter to society's expectations. It was generally believed, of course, that women were inferior to men and so subject to them by divine law. Women who ignored religious precepts and did not submit to male authority were potentially a source of disorder and sexual license. Medical discourse regarded women's bodies as being in a constant state of flux and so possessing dangerously unstable qualities. And such medical theories, of course, was influenced by theology with the belief that um, Eve's moral and intellectual weakness had been the primary cause of the fall of man. And so succeeding generations of women were similarly flawed. And so uh, whilst for Elizabeth's uh, male predecessors, sexual potency might be seen as a sign of political power, the corruption or weakness of Elizabeth's body would undermine the body politic women were to preserve their honour not only through chastity but also by maintaining a reputation for chaste behaviour. For a woman woman to be thought unchaste even falsely would jeopardise her social standing and of course Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, the king's whore and so the living symbol of the break with Rome and for Philip II of Spain, uh, the Guise family in France and the Pope Elizabeth was illegitimate by birth and by religion and for them Mary Stuart, um, Mary Queen of Scots, was the rightful Queen. Mary of course as has been said was the uh, granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister Margaret who had married James V of Scotland and was the daughter of Mary of Guise. The Guise, one of the most powerful, ambitious and fervently Catholic families um, in France, And in April, just six months after Elizabeth's accession, this Franco-Scottish alliance was cemented by the marriage of the 16-year-old Mary Stuart and Francois of Valois, the uh, Dauphin of France. From the day Elizabeth became queen, Mary Stuart claimed the English throne as her own. And so that story begins. The stakes, therefore, could not have been higher. The Queen's body was at the centre of a drama that encompassed the entirety of Europe. In the war of of faith which divided Europe, Elizabeth's body, with her bed as its stage, was the focal point of the conflict. Throughout her reign, rumours circulated about her sexual exploits and illegitimate children. Her Catholic opponents challenged her virtue and accused her of a filthy lust that defiled her body and the country. The reason Elizabeth was not married, they claimed, was because of her sexual appetites. She could not confine herself to one man. Some alleged that she had a bastard daughter, others that she had a son, and others that she was physically incapable of having children. By questioning the health chastity and fertility of the queen's natural body opponents in england and um, across the continent sought to challenge the protestant state and for half a century courts of europe buzzed with gossip about elizabeth's behavior the king of france would jest that one of the great questions of the reign was whether queen elizabeth was a maid or not and i mean it's it can't be really overemphasized the extent to which discussions of the queen's body the, the queen's behavior um whether the queen can have children whether in fact she's having regular periods and so on how much this is a part of uh, ambassadors dispatches and political discourse i mean you know obviously the sort of infamous question in relation to elizabeth's reign is did she or did she not with dudley and i would argue that in a way it doesn't really matter the fact that there were rumors to suggest that she did and not only with dudley um was highly significant politically And of course, as is the prologue in my book, there, of course, was the incident when Elizabeth was an adolescent in her bedchamber with her stepfather, Thomas Seymour, where clearly, um, well, there was what you might want to describe horseplay or sexual abuse um, between um, stepfather and daughter. And this has a real impact on um, Elizabeth's reputation. I mean, she is sending letters out to the... Um, to the council saying you have to put paid the rumours that I'm you know I'm even pregnant which was one rumour these are shameful slanders she said so right from adolescence she's very much aware of um, the danger of such rumours. Of course the Queen's chastity or rather her presumed virginity was one of the most contentious uh, issues of the reign linked to uh, debates about Uh, the royal marriage negotiations and of course linked to the succession and indeed Elizabeth's own legitimacy as a monarch. And so we see of course lots and lots of portraits emphasising her chastity the pearls, a symbol of chastity the sieve portraits here again a symbol of um, purity and chastity. However for her detractors, for uh, Catholics and other um, opponents, allegations of sexual promiscuity Um, were very much uh, to the fore they claimed that the queen's celebrated virginity was a sham and this was as i said linked to attacks on her legitimacy as monarch elizabeth's official virginity which of course she went to great uh, pains to emphasize led to speculations about her um, sexuality in early modern europe women were considered to be actually more voracious in their sexual appetites than men and so contemporaries found it hard to believe that any woman past puberty could remain chaste of her own free will especially if she lacked her husband to uh, provide for her sexual energies and at one point you know William Cecil sort of saying we've you know we've got to get the queen married because it will be more healthy for her it'll be more healthy for her body in other words regular sex would be a really good thing for the queen um, and so whilst we have for some of her detractors uh elizabeth being very promiscuous and that virginity her virginity was a sham for others uh, elizabeth had a bizarre uh, physical defect which meant that she was prevented from having children and therefore this is why she didn't marry she didn't put herself to the test Uh, the playwright ben johnson later repeated the rumor that the queen had a membrane which made her incapable of man although still susceptible to carnal enjoyment of course, Elizabeth's ambiguous relationship with uh, Robert, Se- uh, Robert Dudley, later the Earl of uh, Leicester, and with other suitors, uh, particularly the Duke of Anjou, the French suitor, led to uh, widespread suspicions of sexual misbehaviour. And from the earliest months of Elizabeth's reign, courtiers were exchanging slanderous uh, gossip about Dudley's relationship with the Queen and rumours of their nighttime liaisons. The Count of Ferrier, on the eve of his departure from England in April 1559, wrote to King Philip of the extent of Dudley's intimacy. During the last few days, Lord Robert has come so much into favour that he does what he likes with affairs, and it is even said that Her Majesty visits him in his chamber day and night. People talk of this so freely that they go as far as to say that his wife has a malady in one of her breasts and that the Queen is only waiting for her to die so that she can marry Lord Robert. Countless similar rumours filled ambassadorial dispatches. Um, The Spanish ambassador uh, Guzman de Silva informed Philip in 1566 that Dudley had slept with the Queen on New Year's night. Again, this is something that's described, uh, noted down in um, his dispatch. He'd also earlier reported um, several uh, different rumours as to why Elizabeth was about to go on a progress in the north, including that she's pregnant and is going away to lie in. Now, by the spring of 1560, so within a very short time um, of Elizabeth becoming queen, the story that Elizabeth and Dudley were lovers and indeed Elizabeth was pregnant, were spreading across the country. In April 1560, for example, John White from Devon confessed that drunken Burley had said to him in his own house that the Lord Robert Dudley did swive the Queen. In June, a 68-year-old widow from Essex, Mother Dow, was arrested for openly asserting that the Queen was pregnant by Robert Dudley. The local JPs were charged with investigating the case and wrote to the Privy Council with details of Mother Dow's outburst. The Spanish ambassadors uh, dispatched to King Philip of Spain underlined the seriousness of the situation and the threat to the Queen of such persistently slanderous talk. If she does not marry and behave herself better than hitherto, she will every day find herself in new and greater troubles." And of course, it was only Elizabeth's women who knew the truth of the Queen's relationship with Dudley, only they who could vouch for her chastity. And whilst they would be quick to defend her publicly, and they did, and even though there were many attempts by ambassadors to bribe them um, and the Queen's um, laundress, for example, to give up information about whether the Queen was having regular periods and so on, but whilst her women, would defend her in public and so attempt to uh, protect the queen's reputation we do have instances where we can see how exasperated they are with elizabeth becoming um how exasperated they're becoming with elizabeth and indeed how they take her to task over it for example um cat ashley who's one of um, elizabeth's closest intimates uh, we have an episode in the um, in August 1560 where Cat Ashley um, falls down on her knees before the Queen in the privacy of the uh, royal bedchamber at Hampton Court and implores her mistress to marry and put an end to the disreputable rumours of her relationship with Robert Dudley. She believed Elizabeth was behaving in such a way that would sully her honour and dignity and would in time undermine her subject's loyalty and be the cause of much bloodshed in the realm. Katashi declared that rather than see this happen, she would have, quote, strangled her majesty in her cradle. When Ashley suggested that Elizabeth should end her relationship with Lord Robert, the Queen angrily retorted that she had given no one just cause to associate her with the master of the horse or any other man in the world, and she hoped that they never would truthfully be able to do so. She added but that in this world she had so much sorrow and tribulation and so little joy. If she showed herself gracious towards her master of the horse, she had deserved it for his honourable nature and dealings. She was always surrounded by her ladies of the bedchamber and maids of honour, who at all times could see whether there was anything dishonourable between her and her master of the horse. If she had ever had the will or had found pleasure in such a dishonourable life, she did not know of anyone who could forbid her. But she trusted in God that nobody would ever live live to see her so commit herself. And so this sort of what I wanted to sort of set up there is uh, a sort of strand that runs through the book, which is rumours about the Queen's um, chastity, how her women are used to defend the Queen's chastity, and indeed explore a little bit about um, exactly what the nature of the Queen's relationship with people like Dudley and also suitors like the Duke of Anjou was.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting...
2: Now, if we just go back to the idea of the Queen's body representing the realm, well, of course, as William Cecil said, the state of this crown depends only on the breath of one person, our sovereign lady. He might have added, of course, and the Protestant church, because if Elizabeth died without leaving an heir of her body, the throne, of course, would be claimed by the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots. In other words, only the breath of Elizabeth, only Elizabeth being alive, prevented the end of uh, the Protestant church in England and the restoration of Catholicism. And as such, fears for her health abounded, and she lived under intense scrutiny all aspects of her body, however intimate, were the subject of ambassadorial dispatches and the subject of purient interest on both a national and international level. Uh, on her accession to the throne, the Count of Ferrier again claimed that Elizabeth was not likely to have a long life. Her constitution, he told Philip of Spain, cannot be very strong. The French ambassador agreed. Those who have seen her do not promise her long to live. The events of the autumn of 1562 appeared to confirm such speculation. This was a brilliant scene when I was trying to sort of structure the book and think about the bed as the sort of stage for this story. Uh, The autumn of 1562 becomes a sort of perfect moment for that. Elizabeth falls ill with smallpox and um, she's confined to the bed chamber at Hampton Court and we glimpse there both the treatment, which is very interesting, how the Queen's treated for smallpox. She's wrapped in a red cloth Uh, such is the uh, sort of treatment of the day. Um, She's very, very ill. Everybody's expecting her to die. She's confined to her bedchamber and it causes a great deal of anxiety and fear. Her counsellors can't agree on who should be her successor. Elizabeth, for a time, is sort of unconscious. When she does come round, she says that in the event of her death, uh, Robert Dudley should be protector of the realm with an income of £20,000 a year. And according to one report, sort of sensing their unease, the Queen protested that although she loved and always loved Lord Robert dearly, as God was her witness, nothing improper had ever passed between them. She did make a payment to Dudley's bedfellow, if you like, his groom, um, Tamworth, and some sort of historians have suggested was that sort of payoff to Tamworth to keep him quiet about anything, but who's to say? Anyway, this illness was a stark reminder of the Queen's mortality and the chaos that would ensue if she died without settling the succession. And we see in the Parliament that is called uh, swiftly afterwards um, a draft bill uh, being proposed that in the event of the Queen's death, a Privy Council should exercise all powers until a Protestant successor had been established. Now, although that bill wasn't passed the radical nature of it, in other words, the suggestion of a kind of period of interregnum, which we see resurfacing later on in the reign, again shows the extreme anxiety of the times. Now, it wasn't just the health of the queen's body, of course, but her fertility and ability to bear children that was also an issue. It's important to bear in mind that Elizabeth didn't become the Virgin Queen until the late 1570s, when she was basically past childbearing years. Up until that point, she'd been celebrated of course as a fertile bride but very much as a potential bride in the 1570s england her councillors are stuck with a problem you've basically got a post-menopausal queen who is not going to have any more children who is also not going to name an heir how do you reassure the country that the realm is not entirely vulnerable and entirely dependent on this very aging queen who is no longer going to have any children well you big up her virginity basically you make her virginity her impregnability a strong political currency and so hence the fact we see all of the kind of pictures the portraits of elizabeth and her um, chastity sort of foregrounded it's important to say that up until this point elizabeth's womb was the most important in christian europe Probably for more than 20 years. People debated the health of it, whether she had a womanish infirmity, as some discussed. Um, one ambassador in the early stages of the reign who can't, who's to come and make a proposal to Elizabeth. This is the Scottish envoy, Sir James Melville, who was asked to uh, deliver a proposal to Elizabeth from the uh, Duke of uh, Casimir, the son of the Elector Palatine. He refused the commission. He's saying, I had ground to conjecture that she would never marry because of the story of one of the gentlewomen of her chamber told me, uh, knowing herself incapable of children, she would never render herself subject to any man. In April the following year, the Spanish ambassador reported similar intelligence that he had gathered. If my spies do not lie, uh, which I believe they do not, for a certain reason which they have recently given me, I understand she will not bear children. Elizabeth is then uh, regularly blooded by her physicians where they take uh, blood from her to kind of uh, realign her humours, which was seen as a sort of way in which people uh, maintained their health. And people saw the fact that she was... uh, regularly having these bloodlettings as as a sign that she didn't have the um purgation proper to all women and therefore evidence that she was barren and couldn't have children and of course for elizabeth's enemies this was all very much grist to the mill of the fact that god had punished her for various sins or indeed the sins of her mother and so of course such rumors were politically toxic and the expectation... I mean, of course, we can read reign backwards and think, oh, Elizabeth didn't marry. But it's very important to remember that that certainly wasn't the expectation at the time. It was completely unthinkable that Elizabeth wouldn't marry. The idea of an unmarried woman, for all the reasons I mentioned, but also an unmarried queen, it just wasn't an option. And so the fact that she remained unmarried... Creates this kind of frenzy of rumors about what is going on. I mean, is the Queen sort of sleeping around? Is she got some deformity? What's going on? There must be a reason why the Queen is not marrying. Um, very quickly moving through, beyond, of course, all this debate about the Queen's health and her fertility and so on, the Queen's body and the bedchamber also is a focus of assassination attempts disaffected uh, religious zealots Catholic fanatics plot to kill the Queen and this is a very uh, other another very important strand of the book talking about how again kill the Queen that's the end of Protestant England and so there were attempts by these sort of young uh, Catholic fanatics who inspired by the papal bull of 1570 basically looked to take the Queen out and we have a sort of various accounts of quite random plots to do that including one in which the aim was to plant gunpowder uh, in the queen's bedchamber and then blow her up unfortunately the one of the uh, well the, i mean one of the problems with reading elizabeth's reign and about the plots is you know are we talking double agents are these things set up by walsingham to emphasize to elizabeth the threat that she's under but this particular plot is apparently embroils one of um the queen's a guy one of the queen's um bedfellows sons this guy William Stafford one of the Queen's favorite bedfellows is Lady Dorothy Stafford who she uh, is very fond of um, who she regularly um, has sleeping uh, with her in the bedchamber and uh, William Stafford apparently gets caught up in this plot with the French ambassador uh, to blow up the Queen and then the French ambassador points out that if there's gunpowder in the bedchamber that would also involve blowing up his own mother uh, at which point he thought oh maybe a dagger's better um the women therefore were not only there as sort of custodians of the queen's honor but they were also there to protect the body of the queen from assassination they would make sure that they had checked the queen's uh food they tested any perfume that had been given they made nightly searches of the bedchamber William Cecil for example in March 1560 in a memorandum and again When I was doing the research, you know, I was looking around trying to see whether there was sort of... If I could really tell the story of Elizabeth's reign through, uh, with the principal lens of of the bed. And again, I sort of found a sort of brilliant source by William Cecil. This is a memorandum in 1560, where he writes of the mounting threats against Elizabeth. And he says, "'We do all certainly think that the Queen of Scots, and for her sake her husband and the House of Guise, "'be in their hearts mortal enemies to your Majesty's person.' And with warnings of plots coming thick and fast, Cecil decides to take action to tighten security around the Queen herself. So very much a sense that the Queen, it's the Queen's body that's very much vulnerable and at stake. And so he draws up a memorandum entitled Certain Cautions for the Queen's Apparel and Diet. More care should be taken, he said, to preserve the orderly guarding of the privy chamber and bedchamber. Too often the back doors of the chambers where the Queen's gentlemen were quartered were left open and unattended. Little notice was taken of the stream of laundresses, tailors, wardrobers and such who came and went through them. Anyone could slip in and attack the Queen or introduce into her chamber a poison, slow acting or immediate that could be ingested by mouth or through the skin. From now on, he says, no meat or other food prepared outside the royal kitchens should be allowed into the privy chamber without assured knowledge of its origins perfumed gloves which are a very sort of uh, popular gift to the queen perfumed gloves or sleeves or other garments were to be kept away from the queen unless their hazardous odors were corrected by some other fume um, even those garments worn closest to the queen's skin all manner of uh, things that touch any part of her majesty Bo- majesty's body bare would be circumspectly looked unto No unauthorised persons beside Elizabeth's trusted women were to be allowed near them, lest some harmful substance be hidden in the folds of the linen to menace the Queen's person. As an extra safeguard, Cecil advised that the Queen should take some medicinal preservative against plague and poison just in case some evil attacks her unawares. Elizabeth is very resistant to taking that advice and remains stubborn about it through the rest of her reign. And of course, you know, she's got people like Walsingham and and Cecil who are absolutely obsessed with the dangers to her. Elizabeth is very much, uh, well, she just, she realises the importance to be seen by her people and in many ways kind of inaugurates the royal walkabout. You know, she goes on progresses, she wants to be seen. She realises that that's important, which of course is a security nightmare because, you know, as her... As her coach is travelling along, uh, she's you know the danger of uh, an assassin is very real and there are various plots that look to take her out. Finally, of course, uh, another sort of thread within the book is the reality of the Queen's body because, of course, over the five decades of the reign... I realise I haven't been showing you any pictures. I don't, oh, this is, OK, so this is where we are. Over the five decades of her reign, of course, Elizabeth changes from being a young, vibrant queen with a pale pretty face, golden hair, slender physique, to a wrinkled old woman with rotten teeth, uh, garishly attired with jewels and cosmetics to to, um, detract from her rotten complexion, her pitted complexion, um, with a wig to cover her balding head. But as, of course, she passes through her 20s and 30s and then on into middle age. The fact that the Queen was visibly ageing, simply, well, it couldn't be shown. It couldn't be made visible because, of course, that would intensify fears about what was going to happen after her death. There was no settled succession. And so it was very important to disguise the physical reality of the Queen's ageing, decaying, natural body. And in in doing so, reconcile it with this whole idea of an enduring, unchanging body politic. And therefore, it was only in the bedchamber that we can glimpse Elizabeth her natural body exposed, laid bare. And of course, when the Earl of Essex barges in unannounced, when she's not dressed and ready. I mean, I think all women can empathise with that. You know, first thing in the morning, you don't want someone sort of storming into your bedroom. Uh, But she wasn't happy. Uh, It was the glimpse of the unmade up natural body of the Queen. And of course, just like the fact that every single day before the Queen went out of her bedchamber, her women had to basically do a kind of big cosmetic makeover to slap on... Uh, the makeup which of course in itself was poisonous i mean it was kind of corrosive it was a lead poisoning it was a kind of cosmetic suicide in many ways as well as having to slap all that on access to the queen's body in terms of its representation is also very strictly controlled the queen's image has to retain its youth i mean we have this picture here Um, that was taken when the Queen was sort of in her late 50s. And here we have this sort of youthful, uh, actually it might be even later than that, youthful image of the Queen, no sign of her, in any sense, uh, of her physical decline. There'd been a draft proclamation in 1563, right at the beginning of the reign, attempting to regulate the production and circulation of the Queen's portraits. And although we don't think that was actually... Past, there certainly was a proclamation passed in 1596, which basically commanded public officers to uh, aid the queen, sergeant paper, sorry, sergeant painter, in seeking out unseemly portraits, which were to her great offence, and therefore were to be defaced, um, and no more portraits to be produced except those approved by the sergeant painter. And so we see what Roy Strong describes as the mask of youth in Elizabeth's pictures the mask is strictly controlled. We see she, her face has to appear in different ways. And we, we think that probably some of her women sort of modelled her gowns, and so they were sort of painted from real life. But the face is simply transplanted from image to image. This is, yeah, this is the rainbow portrait from 1600. So Elizabeth's in her 60s here, late 60s, highly symbolic portrait, appears much lo- uh, younger. And so portraits notoriously fictitious which, as I come to the end, brings us nicely and sort of in an up-to-date way to a very current image, which was uh, freshly um, authenticated. Um, f- well, quite recently, it was described in the papers in sort of February. And this is a new revealed picture of um, Elizabeth uh, from the workshop of uh, Marcus Giritz, which makes it so remarkable because he was. Uh, it was from that workshop that the Ditchley portrait... Uh, was produced but here we have a unmistakably aging elizabeth her wrinkles unconcealed by makeup heavy dark lines under her eyes very obvious fleshly deterioration and the sort of melancholy age and as i say it's contrast quite sharply to uh this sort of idea of the sort of divine immortal elizabeth standing aloft uh over uh over her realm, the sun reflecting her glory and so on. It's a, it's a very it's stark contrast. It's, it's unclear exactly the, um, what exactly happened to this portrait in the sense that it was clearly not uh, something that the Queen and her councillors would uh, approve of. It may well have been painted by a detractor of the Queen. Um, and it was this, exactly this kind of portrait which the uh, Elizabethan regime feared, this whole idea that the Queen's floors uh, wouldn't be covered up. And in that sense, it's a, it's a rare exception. It's indicative, of course, of the Queen's uh, imminent demise. Very different from the sort of theme of immortality that other pictures are um, emphasising. Finally, finally, Elizabeth dies. Sorry, that's the end of the book. Well, actually, it's not. It's actually, it's not. But anyway, that's what happens in the end. And of course... The body politic, the natural body, it still has to be dealt with and managed. The Queen doesn't just die and that's it. What do we do? Well, of course, we see in this period the construction of a lifelike waxwork wooden effigy of the Queen. Stuff about royal effigies is really, really interesting. It's a medieval custom which was used to maintain continuity and sustain the fiction of the Queen's two bodies during the period before the funeral. Okay, okay. The natural body would obviously begin to decay. The political body in that period was threatened by disorder. Um, The effigy sought to preserve a sort of immortal dignity for the deceased monarch. And the effigy, as the Venetian ambassador described, Elizabeth I, was carved in wood, coloured so faithfully that she seemed alive, representing her youthful, uh, forever youthful face, completed with a flaming red wig. And the Venetian ambassador reported with some surprise that at Whitehall this is after the queen's dead the queen dies the queen the council wait on the queen continually with the same ceremony the same expenditure down to her very household and table serve as though she were not wrapped in many a fold of sear cloth and hid in such a heap of lead of coffin but that she was walking as she used to do in this season about the alleys of her uh, garden and so in accordance with ancient custom we see an effigy and basically the effigy is being attended to and in sort of lieu of the presence of the queen and at, on the day of the co- uh, of the funeral which is a sort of de-investing if you like of coronation regalia where the sort of mystique of monarchy is finally um replaced or uh, off uh, the natural body if you like is made properly bare and um rid of, of royal uh, majesty the effigies on top of the coffin comes in all dressed up, orb, scepter, flaming red wig, crown, and finally, in the funeral ceremony, uh, it's derobed, and finally, the natural body of the Queen and the political body are put to rest. Of course, that isn't the end of the story, because then James digs Elizabeth's body up three years after her death and moves it. That, however, is another story.
3: That was Anna Whitelock. Anna is the author of Elizabeth's Bedfellows, An Intimate History of the Queen's Court, published by Bloomsbury. She's also written an article on Queen Elizabeth for our June issue, which is out now in print and digitally. Also in the issue, we've got articles on the Battle of Bosworth, a suffrage at Martyr, the Conquest of Everest and the Great Reform Act, among other things. And that's almost all for this week, but before we go, I'd like to quickly mention that tickets are selling very fast for our History Weekend Festival – Taking place in the historic Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of October, this weekend includes talks from some of Britain's leading historians, among them Max Hastings, Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Dan Snow, Sarah Foote and Alison Weir. For the full line-up and for ticket information, please visit historyweekend.com. Next week, we'll be talking to Charles Moore about his new biography of Margaret Thatcher, and finding out what Roy Hattersley has to say about the Devonshire family. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, don't forget to check out our website, historyextra.com, and follow us on social media. We're at History Extra on Twitter, and we're also on facebook.com forward slash historyextra. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.